good to be back with you again. Even though, as Craig said, every pastor knows that when he gets into the pulpit that there is scrutiny from man. But Craig, you and I both know that that scrutiny from man is nothing compared to the weightiness of this frightful privilege to speak on behalf of God to his people. And I've said it here before and I'll say it again. Especially when you have that sense, right, Craig? That sense where every sermon that you preach, it's as if Jesus is just right there behind you, looking over your shoulder. (laughs) This doesn't help. I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Psalm 114. Psalm 114. Now, the actual sermon is from Psalm 115. But Psalm 115 is part of a group of psalms that range from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. They are called the Hallel Psalms. Uh, Some of them are, uh, these are often referred to as the Egyptian Hillel Psalms uh, because these uh, are psalms that were used in many of the different celebrations like in Passover, Pentecost, uh, the Feast of of Tabernacles and Booths. And this this group of psalms were used uh, in those different uh, worship celebrations. And uh, in a lot of text traditions, Psalm 114 and Psalm 115 are just one psalm. Um, So I'm going to begin reading uh, for Psalm 115. I'm going to begin reading in Psalm 114.1. Hear now the word of our God. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. 
O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do indeed worship and magnify your greatness and your glory this morning. For you are the God of steadfast love. You are the God of faithfulness. To your promises, to your glory, but also for some reason, Lord, even to us, your people who struggle to be devoted to you, your people who struggle not to give in to the gods of this world. And so we ask you, O oh God, to be faithful and steadfast in your love to us, even this morning through the preaching of your word, and ask that you would satisfy the longings of our hearts that we may indeed praise you and rejoice and be glad in you all the days of our existence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the mountains. I love to visit the mountains, and I love all the little fun things that mountainous tourist places have for you to do. We lived on Lookout Mountain prior to living here in Charleston. We lived uh, the street right behind Rock City. One of the things Rock City was known for was this rope ladder that you had to cross in order to see all of what was there. And rope ladders or rope bridges are, are fun for some of us. For some people, they're terrifying, right? Who wants to get on a bridge that's swaying and rocking and shaking, right? Well, in China, they have one-upped everybody in the world. And on an extremely tall mountain, what they've done is instead of having a rope bridge, they have created a skywalk that is formed completely out of glass. Now, what that means is when you are walking along this skywalk, you are able to look down through what you're standing on, and you're able to see down all the way down the 3,871 feet that are below you, where nothing is below you. See, for some of us, that sounds pretty exciting. For others of you right now, you're kind of like, oh, I don't, I don't think so. Well, to make it even more exciting or frightful, depending on your persuasion, 
what they've done in one section as you're walking along innocently checking out all the beauty that surrounds you as you walk along as you step onto one of the panels what happens is you can start seeing the glass splinter and shatter and you can hear the glass crunching underneath you see exciting for some frightening for others now the glass isn't really breaking all right the government doesn't want to have to cover those legal expenses but it's a computer generated effect where you can hear it you can see it and it looks and it sounds real even though it is completely false. There is 100% zero danger. And yet, when you watch videos of people stepping onto that pain, especially the people who don't know to expect it, the responses are kind of funny. People will dive down, you know, and start wailing and crying and other, you know, and start scrambling back where they came from. And it's, it's a very, a very interesting scene. I saw this on YouTube several months ago. And one of the things that hit me there was what a wonderful picture of what it means, or maybe better yet, what it feels like to be a Christian in our current cultural situation. By every stretch of the imagination, especially for our older, seasoned citizens here, it would appear as though the foundations of Western society that have been built upon a Judeo-Christian understanding of the world it seems like we can see the glass breaking. It seems like we can hear the glass shattering underneath us. Everything that we look at within our current cultural situation seems to be telling us that the Christian faith no longer has a place in our society. And for some, it is very scary. What I want you to know this morning, and what I have been trying to build up to in some of the previous sermons that I have preached, which I'm sure you memorized and you know exactly what I'm talking about here, is there's a very real sense in which it looks like there is actual danger, but there is zero. There is absolutely no danger to Christ's church living in this current context. It is more difficult, that is for sure. But the difficulty, what I would like to say, is a difficulty that's not the result of the challenge. It's a difficulty in that we are actually having to more and more 
actually live by faith. When our society, when the foundations and when the structures of our society were friendly to our faith, it was very easy to walk by faith, right? It's very easy when you step out of your door and your values and your way of seeing things, when you interact in the world outside of your house and it is reflecting the way you see things, it's not as difficult. Everything around you is supporting your faith even if you're not actively engaged in being aware of it. What is happening right now is that those foundations are being replaced and the structures are disappearing. And what is happening, what is happening for us now is we are being called to live by faith in a different cultural context where we really do have to live by faith. To see the things that are real beyond the experience that is right in front of us. Because of our situation, one philosopher has said, you know, in 1500... It was impossible. It was nearly impossible in Western civilization not to believe in God because everything was dominated by the church. But now, a mere 500 years later, believing in God seems to be a near impossibility when you look at what is going on around us. We are living more and more in what we call a post-Christian society. We are living more and more in what we call a secular culture. And the reality of that is people live as if God is dead. And as a result, the individual is left to define things for himself or herself. We live in a cold universe that functions according to a bl the blind whims of cause and effect. And as a result, life has become defined by the use of wealth and power. This is not new. Because when we look at Psalm 115, what is being described for us there is the difficult challenge for the people of God to live among the nations who reject Yahweh and who mock Yahweh and are left with that, in, that intense challenge of how do we live only devoted to Yahweh as the one true God and not giving in to the worship of the false gods that surround us. The writing of this psalm is, the context here is the people of God who have returned from the exile in Babylon. They are back living in the land, except the enemies are still living in the land as well. They have come back from exile. They have come back from Babylon. They're in the promised land, but the promised land doesn't look like the promised land. They're in their homeland, 
but their worldview is not the dominant worldview. They live in this region promised to them by God, and yet the very structures, the foundations of everything around them within their society do not point to Yahweh. Everything is pointing to the different false gods of the different nations that are all surrounding them. And what they do is they find themselves living in this land where they constantly hear this mocking question, where is your God? If your God was true, if your God was real, if your God was the strongest, we wouldn't be here to be bothering you. If your God was the true God, we would be serving you. But you're serving us. Obviously, our God must be stronger. Our gods must be more powerful. And this was the society that they lived in. Where is your God? Now, we can resonate with that question, can't we? We can resonate with what it means and what it's like to live in a culture that is constantly mocking us and pointing to us and saying, where's your God? Where's your God, Christians? Look at the shift in morality. Look at the shift in marriage. Look look at the shift in education. Look at the shift in government, in worldview, in philosophy. In TV, in movies, in every story that's being told, look around you Christians, you guys are on your way out. And the reason you're on your way out is because your religion is just something that you use to make yourself feel better in a difficult world. And the reality is, beloved, as we live in a culture that does say that to us over and over and over, where is your God? It becomes very easy for us within the secret places of our hearts to start asking, God, where are you? It becomes very easy to become influenced and to start asking ourselves the same question that society mocks us with. The reason I'm pointing this out is because we, as the church, have been trying to deal with this situation in the wrong way. We have made this issue primarily an intellectual issue. We have been engaging in this situation primarily from an intellectual worldview perspective where we think that what is going on here is that there are certain ideas that are starting to dominate the day and those ideas are different than previous ideas and so what we need to do is recover the old ideas and try to get them back into place so that the the old ideas 
those ideas, that worldview of the Judeo-Christian worldview, if we can recover those ideas and get them operating back within society, then it will be easier for us to live within society again because society will be more friendly to our perspective. Beloved, we have made this about the intellect, and it is not primarily about the intellect. The problem and the challenge that is before us is primarily and essentially a problem of desire. We have a problem that has to do with what people crave, what they want, what they long for, what they value, what they love. And so to set you up for this sermon, back on May 5th, I preached a sermon here titled, The Story and Symbols of Participation in God's Life and Love, from Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And in that sermon, I pointed out and quoted from Gerald Manley Hopkins, the world is charged with the grandeur of God, that the world and everything in it is was created in this harmonious whole that was ordered by God and filled with meaning. And that all things were pointing to God. And that in creation, there, prior to the fall, there was this sacramental presence of God, this hidden presence of God that could be enjoyed and experienced as one would interact with material creation and understand that the beauty and the goodness of what God had made, he had put there as a reflection of his beauty and his goodness. And he did not desire for us to interact with him purely through the intellect. He didn't design the world and he didn't design us to function primarily according to just thoughts or ideas. So he created something that could be seen and handled and touched and tasted and it was beautiful and it was glorious. And when Adam and Eve would interact with that creation, and through the interaction with the world that God created, lift their eyes and interact in worship of the God who had made it. That this was the way creation was to function. God longed to be desired. And so he made a world that reflect, that was desirable, and he made us as those who were designed to desire. And so whether in eating or in drinking or in working or in loving, there was this experience of God through his creation. Desire for God through earthly blessings led to a life of devotion with God in the heavenly places. The creation was designed as a participation But on July 28th, I preached a sermon from Genesis 3 that I had titled, Sin, Separating God from His Word 
and his world. I think on your website it's titled Grace Abounds. Both accurate titles. What Adam and Eve did in the garden was they utilized their, their, their God-given design of desire but twisted it used it in a way that was contrary to design so that the desire within the heart of seeing that the fruit was was desirable and to see that it was good for making one wise they exercised their their desire in taking of the fruit. The problem is God had said this was the one thing, the one tree that you were not supposed to eat from. And so they separated God from his creation and then went and received his blessing while ignoring God in the process. And beloved, what we are dealing with in our everyday lives right now here as Americans in this culture What we are dealing with in the secularity of this post-Christian situation is the direct result of that first secular act of separating God from his world, attempting to receive his blessings while ignoring him in the process. Our problem that we are wrestling with is a problem of the heart. Where God designed us to be desirers. He designed us to be lovers. He designed us to be worshipers. But what has happened as that first sin, as we said in that last sermon, as that first sin grew and grew and grew and it got bigger and it got bigger and as sin increased and as sin increased and as sin increased and as this overwhelming pattern of sin started taking over the existence of Adam and Eve in this world as sin increased grace abounded and God will not allow his plan to be thwarted Now, how does this connect with Psalm 115 today? In Psalm 115, to his people living in the midst of a culture that does not value him, a culture that sees him as not being real, a culture that sees him as not being true, and therefore mocking his people, God says to his people, trust in me. Because if you trust in the idols around you, you will become like that idol. That function of desire that God built into us is still there. But it has become corrupted by sin. And as a result... Our world is full of people who are going after the desires of their hearts apart from God. Or as C.S. Lewis has described history in his book, Mere Christianity. That out of the hopeless attempt of 
finding happiness apart from God has come all of human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, socioeconomic classes, empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. As Augustine has said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And it is that restlessness of your heart, beloved, that you need to be taking very seriously. Because the reality is for us, we can have the right thoughts about the conflict of the worldviews that exist around us, but if we are not watching our hearts, our hearts will go after the things that God has designed for them to go after, but if we don't manage them, they will go after them in such a way in order to either have them without having God with them, or to have them above God. And that can be going after good things or going after inherently sinful things. Your hearts are never in neutral. And if you think the primary difficulty of living in our culture right now is that there aren't things in place that make it easy for you to practice the Christian faith, then you are endangering yourself to allow your heart to grab hold of something that God never desired to, for it to grab a hold of. We called to embrace God by faith. And not only when it's easy to do so, but especially when everything around us is mocking us for doing so. Beloved, the reality here is that you will become what you worship. You will become what your heart is set upon. As a way another writer has said it, you are what you love. And so within this psalm, we are presented with two opportunities. One, to trust the idols and become like them, which is ironic, right? Because we're told in the psalm that we make idols that look like us. But what would it look like to become like the idols that we make? Well, it's to have eyes but not see, ears but not hear, hands but not feel, feet but not walk. It's to become impotent. It's to become dead. It's to lose the inherent power of the presence of God in your life. When you continue to allow your heart to be formed and shaped by the values of this world, it doesn't matter if you keep the ideas of the differences between the worldviews straight in your mind. If you do not follow the truth 
with the way that you engage your heart in this world, you are going to become powerless and impotent in your faith. You will become like the idol that you worship. But if you will set your hearts upon God, then just as you become what you worship, if you are worshiping the wrong thing, so you will receive the blessing of God when you set your heart upon him. And ultimately in this psalm, why should we set our hearts upon God and not set our hearts upon the false idols of this world? Because man doesn't even truly want his false idol. God has given this world one who came from the heavenlies, who was God himself. And God gave him to this world with eyes and with ears and with hands and with feet with a mouth. He gave us Jesus Christ. And even when God came to this world as one who looked like what man said that they wanted, they rejected him. And they hung him on a tree. And they mocked him. And beloved, Jesus was raised from the dead. And he was raised to a new body. And he is one who has eyes even now. And with those eyes, he looks upon you. And he has ears right now. And with those ears, he listens to your prayers and mediates them to your, to your heavenly father. He has hands and he has used those in, in order to serve. And he has feet that are going to be used to run to us at the appointed time when our faith will give way to sight. We have a God who is alive. We have a God who has, has been risen from the dead. We have a God that grants us everything that we need for life and godliness because by nature of our union with him, we, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1, now partake with him of the divine nature. The problem is not in the desire of wanting that higher existence and wanting to be, in a sense, God-like. The problem is when we try to get there on our own and establish ourselves as that highest being in existence rather than sharing in the exaltation of the God-man Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, let his glory be the glory that you desire. And let his exaltation be the exaltation that you run after. Let his existence be that higher heavenly existence that you set your heart on and rearrange your life according to. But remember as you do so, 
that to be united with our Savior in this way is to be united in his life and ministry, an exaltation that came through suffering. This is what it means for us to share in the life of God through Jesus Christ. And this is why, beloved, what seems like cracking and shattering glass underneath our feet is nothing. Because what anchors us in the heavenly places could not be more sure because Jesus Christ is alive. That is the object of your heart. And that is how you live in a world that mocks your faith and asks, where is your God? We say he is in the heavenlies. And according to St. Paul, I have been raised up and seated with Christ with him there. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that it is so easy to get caught up in the difficulties of this life. And it is so easy, Lord, to set our hearts upon ease, to allow the values of the world to determine the values of our faith, even to the point of, of buying into this, this false view that victory always looks like victory. That exaltation always comes through strength, a demonstration of power. But Lord, you have shown us that these things come through what looks like apparent weakness. That it comes through what looks like a crazy idea. And that is for the eternal second person of the Trinity to take on flesh and to die. And that to be the hope of God's people, that you have come and that you have suffered, but that yet you have been raised from the dead. And so, Lord, we pray that as we are constantly faced with the distractions around us, and as we are constantly tempted to become afraid or to think that what we need to do is respond to the current situation by retaking power, by retaking influence, by retaking things through the force of government or power or for whatever means, Lord, free us from that, that we might cling to the cross of Jesus Christ and be so formed by him, not only in our hearts, but in our mission that we would go out with the boldness of a resurrection good news that does not look for ease within this world, but embraces, as we have been told in the past, what true religion is, which is not a soft, comfortable blanket, but a cross. And so bless us, we pray, through this word, and form and shape Christ within us, and make us conscious, Lord, of what we are setting our hearts upon, that we might not have right ideas, but wrong loves, and reform our loves according to yours, that we, in the union of Jesus Christ, might come to embody those loves, and through that be the powerful expression of hope in this world. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.